Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Games People Play. And by people, I mean the games that Mormon apologists play. And more specifically, I mean Mormon apologists relating to the Book of Abraham, the games they play. Tonight, I want to give three specific instances of games that apologists, and specifically John Gee and Carrie Mulestein, play with regard to the facts relating to the Book of Abraham, deceptive arguments that they make in order to prove their theory that the Book of Abraham is indeed ancient and authentic. We have gone through over the past month hours and hours of podcasts relating to the book of Abraham, and I think that we're at the point now where we have the background information necessary for this audience to understand how it is that the apologists are playing games in these three instances without having to give a whole lot of background information to get to the point. But before I get to that part of the podcast, I want to briefly synopsize all of the activity that has occurred among the Mormon apologists in response to the 13 hours of interviews with Dr. Robert Rittner on the Book of Abraham. Because the first thing that I know is that if there were any way that the apologists could simply ignore these interviews, not only with Dr. Rittner, but also with Professor Brian Hauglid, which issued before the interviews with Dr. Rittner, if there were any way for the apologists to simply ignore those and let them go away, that would be the first tactic that they would use. The fact that they have indeed responded, even though it's typically a non-response response, but that they have responded in several different formats and forums since those interviews issued tells me that the impact that these interviews are making is substantial. If they were not substantial, they would simply be ignoring these interviews and not responding at all, and certainly not in the way that they are. The first response we saw was an interview by John Gee that was put up on video on YouTube, and it was framed as an advertisement of sorts for Pearl of Great Price Central. That is the interview in which John Gee made the stunning admission that he is backing away from Olishem as an evidence for the Book of Abraham. I covered that in a prior podcast called John Gee Comes Clean. The next thing that happened was that Carrie Muelstein, also an Egyptologist at Brigham Young University, wrote and put up what he called an essay dealing with the manner in which academics talk about things such as the Book of Abraham. And in that essay, he went on and on and on about why it is that he is not going to be sitting down for an interview with Robert Rittner about the Book of Abraham. I covered that lengthy essay in a prior podcast called Brave Sir Carey. And as I said in that podcast, the purpose of that essay seemed clear to me. And the purpose of the essay was that Carrie Muelstein was stating loud and clear that he is not, repeat, not a chicken shit for refusing to go on a podcast with Dr. Rittner to talk about the subject of the Book of Abraham. Well, since that time, Carrie Muelstein has put up a second essay, which he calls an update to his first essay. And I call this second essay, Why I Am Not a Chicken Shit, Part 2. Dr. Muelstein calls this second essay an update from Carrie Muelstein regarding raising the Abrahamic discourse. And in this essay, he says a number of very interesting things. This essay, by the way, was published on September 2nd, 2020. Today's date is September 8th. 2020. Today is Tuesday. This second essay was published by Carrie Muelstein six days ago on September 2nd, 2020. So that was just last week. 
You may recall that Dr. Muehlstein got a lot of flack in his first essay for never once mentioning the name of Robert Rittner and referring him only once and in passing as a guest on a podcast. He got a lot of flack for that. And so now in the second essay, the updated essay, he does mention Dr. Rittner's name. And the main point of this updated essay is to advise the public that Kerry Muehlstein had contacted Robert Rittner about the proposition of jointly co-authoring a book on the book of Abraham. Kerry Muehlstein tells us that Robert Rittner had declined politely his invitation, citing his own health issues, i.e. Robert Rittner's health issues that he's experiencing right now with kidney failure. That is where Kerry Muehlstein ends the story of his communication with Robert Rittner. I decided to call Robert Rittner on the phone and ask him about this conversation he had with Kerry Muehlstein, and he told me that yes, Kerry Muehlstein did contact him by email suggesting that they jointly co-author a book that Robert Rittner had declined that invitation but that there's more to the story, that Robert Rittner had once again proposed the suggestion that they both appear on a podcast in order to discuss the issues. Robert Rittner told me that he is still waiting to hear back from Carrie Muehlstein on that suggestion. So the suggestion and invitation to Dr. Muehlstein and Dr. Gee was originally made to appear on a podcast to discuss the issues live with Dr. Rittner. Carrie Muehlstein declined that invitation and wrote an entire essay talking about why it was that he was not going to appear on a podcast with Dr. Rittner. He then contacts Robert Rittner by email, suggesting that they jointly co-author a book, and that Dr. Rittner declined citing health issues. Carrie Muehlstein, however, does not mention the last part of the email correspondence, that last part being that Dr. Rittner then once again suggested a podcast with the two of them. And I think that there's probably a reason that Dr. Muehlstein does not include that part of the conversation in his recitation of his discussion of the issue with Dr. Rittner. Then, in his update, Kerry Muehlstein states, quote, Finally, I hope that no one will speculate about Professor Rittner's reasons for declining my invitation. Well, why would anybody speculate about his reasons? He already gave his reasons. He has severe health problems. It's not like this was a secret to anybody. At the beginning and the end of every one of the three podcast interviews with Dr. Rittner, we announced that Dr. Rittner was suffering kidney failure and asking for people in the audience to contact the health professionals involved to see if they would be willing to donate a kidney. So when Carrie Muehlstein writes, finally, I hope that no one will speculate about Professor Rittner's reasons for declining my invitation. I translate that as meaning, please don't think Professor Rittner is scared of engaging in academic dialogue with me and is just using his kidney failure as an excuse. And then the translation of that translation goes as follows. Please don't think I am scared of engaging with Professor Rittner in academic dialogue because I refuse to talk to him on a public platform about the Book of Abraham. I think that's what Kerry Muehlstein was really getting at with that particular sentence. Something else Kerry Muehlstein wrote in that second essay raised my eyebrows. This is what he says. Regardless of the area of study, all scholars approach any topic with their own set of existing beliefs. It is impossible for a scholar to be a blank slate when it comes to any field of study. Kerry Muehlstein goes on. It is no surprise that my existing beliefs are consistent with what I view as the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith. But then I think he goes a bridge too far by writing the following. It is likewise no surprise that others, including Professor Rittner, 
start with a set of beliefs that preclude divine involvement in the work of Joseph Smith, period. That's the end of the quote from Carrie Muelstein's updated essay. Now, I see this as a false equivalence that Dr. Muelstein is drawing. He suggests that because he forces the evidence to fit his preconception that the book of Abraham was divinely revealed, that Dr. Rittner must suffer from the same handicap, only from the other side. Actually, I think Dr. Rittner is simply saying that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian. Spencer Wright, a listener to this program, made an excellent comment by analogy of what it is that Dr. Muelstein is saying here. The analogy, Spencer Wright writes, the analogy would be like a football game where the Rittner team is starting with the existing beliefs of playing by the rules, while the Muelstein team is starting with the existing belief of Muelstein's team winning no matter what. In the analogy, Rittner isn't starting with the belief that Joseph Smith couldn't translate Egyptian. He's just starting with the rules of Egyptology and from those rules, concluding Joseph couldn't translate Egyptian. An excellent analogy there, Spencer Wright. Thank you for including that in the comment section at my Facebook page. By the way, if any of you want to catch up on the discussions that are going on among listeners to this program and different issues that are being discussed on the podcast, please go to my Radio Free Mormon Facebook page and join in the fun. While you're there, please like the Facebook page and let us know what you think about these issues. Clay Allred writes about Dr. Muelstein's quote, others, including Professor Rittner, start with a set of beliefs that preclude divine involvement in the work of Joseph Smith. Yeah, no crap. That's what Clay Allred says. Yeah, no crap. Normally, scholarly work does not include approaching any subject in the world with the idea that Joseph Smith or anybody else was divinely inspired. I mean, come on, really? An excellent comment there by Clay Allred. Brent Smith on the Facebook page had stated four days ago, it would be interesting to hear Dr. Rittner's version of that conversation. That is why I contacted Dr. Rittner personally and asked for his version of the conversation and included his version of the conversation, which adds the fact that he included the invitation to appear on a podcast with Dr. Carrie Muelstein, and Carrie Muelstein has not gotten back to him on that suggestion yet. I think that Dr. Rittner is going to be waiting a very long time to hear back from Dr. Muelstein on that suggestion. Because everything that Dr. Muelstein has done and written has been done by way of explaining why it is that he is never going to appear on a podcast with Dr. Rittner. Instead, he comes up with this idea of jointly co-authoring a book together. Now, this was a non-starter from the beginning, and I think that Carrie Muelstein knew that. What he wants to do is try and come up with something that will not be acceptable to Dr. Rittner, some method of sharing their views that Dr. Rittner would never agree to, propose it to Dr. Rittner, have Dr. Rittner decline because of health issues, and then suggest that it is Dr. Rittner who does not want to engage in academic conversation on the subject. This strikes me as similar to a believer that the earth is flat, a flat earther wanting to talk to Neil deGrasse Tyson about whether the earth is round. And not only that, to make the analogy more accurate, it would be as if there is a small religious group that has as part of its cardinal tenets the idea that the earth is flat. And there are certain apologists within the small religious group, we'll call them the flat earthers, that promote the idea that the earth is flat and then adduce what they believe are scientific reasons for believing that the earth is flat. Neil deGrasse Tyson then wrote an entire book debunking the idea that the earth is flat and stating unequivocally that the earth is actually round. 
This small religious group, the Flat Earthers, then produces an essay that it puts up on the flatearth.org website about how the Earth is actually flat. Neil deGrasse Tyson then writes a complete article on his university website showing why it is that this essay from the Flat Earthers is wrong. Neil deGrasse Tyson then goes on a podcast and is interviewed for 13 hours on the subject of why it is that the Flat Earthers are wrong and inviting the Flat Earthers, the main apologist, on for a discussion as to whether the Earth is flat or whether the Earth is round. The Flat Earther apologist declines this invitation and then sends an email to Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't we write a book together about whether the Earth is round or whether the Earth is flat? I think that we can all understand why Neil deGrasse Tyson would decline that invitation, even if he didn't have severe health considerations that were ongoing. I mean, what is the point? Neil deGrasse Tyson has already stated multiple times in multiple venues, including books, including podcasts, why it is that the Earth is not flat, the Earth is actually round. What is the point of writing a book jointly co-authored with one of these flat earther apologists on the same subject? It is a non-starter from the beginning. And I think it's even more humorous that the flat earther in this analogy, although I think you all know by now that I'm referring to Dr. Muelstein, that this flat earther says, well, podcasts or interviews or live discussions on the subject are just not the way that academics talk to each other. No, there has to be a book that we jointly co-author. It is clear to me that this was a suggestion that was a non-starter from the beginning. I do not know whether Dr. Muelstein intended it to be a non-starter from the beginning, but I think that if Dr. Muelstein is as intelligent as I believe him to be, he would know it was a non-starter from the beginning. And I start to think maybe that was the whole point in making that counteroffer. Also last week, in addition to this second and updated essay by Dr. Muelstein, he appeared for an 18-minute interview with Pearl of Great Price Central. There, Dr. Muelstein presents a new video of what is most definitely not a response to all the hubbub created by the Dr. Rittner interviews. We know this because, once again in this video, he studiously avoids mentioning Dr. Rittner's name. It is only 18 minutes long, but in this interview that went up five days ago, or in other words, September 3rd, 2020, it may have gone up the day before on September 2nd, 2020. At any rate, it was last week. There was a flurry of activity, as I say, among the Mormon apologists relating to the book of Abraham. I have not seen this much activity since 4th of July of 1972 when I was visiting my cousins in Abilene, Texas and stuck a firecracker down the hole of a red ant mound and set it off. That's the kind of activity I'm seeing from the apologists in response to the Dr. Rittner interviews. At the 15.35 mark in this interview, Dr. Muelstein says, you have to say that Joseph Smith was hundreds of times luckier than any other person that has ever lived on earth to have gotten all of these things so right. You have to say that Joseph Smith was hundreds of times luckier than any other person that's ever lived on earth to have gotten all of these things so right. Really, Dr. Muelstein, hundreds? This sounds like an exaggeration. It sounds like the same kind of millions of mummies exaggeration that got Dr. Muelstein's permit to dig in Egypt, revoked. That, by the way, is a bit of an inside joke to a number of years ago when Dr. Muelstein was involved in a dig conducted by Brigham Young University over in Egypt where they found some bodies and he made a comment publicly that he felt there were millions of mummies that would be found 
at this dig. As a result of this, the government of Egypt revoked BYU's permit to dig there, but it was eventually reinstated after some behind-the-scenes negotiations and doubtless apologies. Suffice it to say that not only were there no mummies that were found, they were actually dead bodies. Mummies, as you probably know, is a specific kind of dead body, one that has been mummified. One would think that Dr. Muelstein, an Egyptologist, would be able to recognize the difference. But instead of talking about dead bodies, he talks about millions of mummies without ever having even found one mummy at the location. He was basing it upon the square footage of the dig and some dead bodies that had been found. Needless to say, he was hopelessly exaggerating his claim, much the same way as he appears to be exaggerating his claim that Joseph Smith was hundreds of times luckier than any other person that has ever lived on earth to have gotten all of these things so right. Strangely, Dr. Muelstein does not go into any of those examples of how it is that Joseph Smith was hundreds of times luckier in this interview. We just have to take his word for it. After all, he is the Egyptologist. He must know what he's talking about. It is possible that Dr. Muelstein misspoke, and instead of talking about Joseph Smith getting hundreds of things right, he actually meant hundreds of misses. Because we do know from history that Joseph Smith was definitely down with hundreds of misses. But um bum. Now that he's doing this video in response to Dr. Rittner, obviously, it is an interesting exercise to count how many times Dr. Muelstein says, I don't know, or variations of that phrase, I don't know, we don't know, there isn't enough data for us to know, when talking about what he can conclude academically about the book of Abraham. He does say, I know a number of times, but the only times Dr. Muelstein says, I know in this video, have to do with religious truth claims such as that Abraham lived and was an actual individual and that the book of Abraham is scripture. Over and over again, in fact, approximately 14 or 15 times during this 18-minute video, Carrie Muelstein says, I don't know and we don't know with regard to academic issues related to the book of Abraham. Listen to this video yourself and see what you think. By the way, another issue that is of some interest is that you will notice that I just referred you to listen to the actual interview that Carrie Muelstein conducted at Pearl of Great Price Central. You can find it on YouTube. It is called Interview with Carrie Muelstein, colon, Book of Abraham. Because what I want you to notice is that time and time and time again in the course of my podcasts, I refer you to the sources. I refer you to them by name. Frequently, I will give you a citation for them so that you can listen to Kerry Muelstein in his own words, so that you can listen to Dr. John Gee in his own words, so that you can listen to church leaders in their own words. This is what I do over and over and over again. On the other side of the equation, however, we see the apologists doing something very different. They do not give citations to opposing viewpoints. They do not give references to opposing viewpoints. They do not let their audience know where those opposing viewpoints can be found. And in many instances, the apologists will not even mention the names of the people who are giving these opposing viewpoints. One gets the idea that the apologists do not want the members of the church to find out about these opposing viewpoints, to know where they're located so that they can listen to it themselves. So while here at Radio Free Mormon, we go out of our way to give the opposing viewpoints to our audience and show where they can be listened to and read, the apologists, on the other hand, go out of their way to not do that same type of thing. And so we can see a stark contrast in the behavior of the two sides with regards to this particular issue. I think I will let the audience decide as to which side has a stronger position. The one that encourages you to read the other side 
of the issue and provides sources and links to you in order to allow you to do that, i.e. that's my side, or the other side of the apologist that refuses to mention where you can find the other podcasts, the other interviews, the other side of the equation. Is it the apologists who believe that they have the stronger side of the argument, or is it Radio Free Mormon? One of the sentences that Dr. Muehlstein uses in this video that contrasts his use of the term we don't know versus what he does know runs as follows, quote, this is Dr. Muehlstein in the video. We don't know much, but we do know Joseph used the gift and power of God. So academically, they don't know much about how Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham, but they do know, Dr. Muehlstein does know, that Joseph used the gift and power of God. See how when he's talking about academically approaching the book of Abraham as an Egyptologist, he doesn't really know that much. But when it comes to a faith claim, as a Latter-day Saint, Dr. Muehlstein is very clear in claiming that he does know that Joseph used the gift and power of God to translate. And in one of the strangest things that Dr. Muehlstein stated in this 18-minute video that went up last week, he actually states, quote, the book of Abraham is not based on Egyptology in any way. That's found at the 11 minute and 20 second mark in the interview. The book of Abraham is not based on Egyptology in any way. Uh, so I do not think uh, that it has been or can be disproved because in the end, the book of Abraham is not about Egyptology. Uh, and it's not based on Egyptology really in any way. Well, when I heard that, I thought, what are you talking about? Haven't you spent your entire career as an Egyptologist trying to prove the book of Abraham true through Egyptology? Hasn't Dr. Gee spent his entire career as an Egyptologist trying to prove the book of Abraham true by Egyptology? And now all of a sudden, after the 13-hour interview with Dr. Rittner and the two-hour interview with Dr. Hauglid before that, suddenly now Dr. Muehlstein seems to be abandoning the entire Egyptological field by stating that the book of Abraham is not based on Egyptology in any way. Well, if the book of Abraham is not based on Egyptology in any way, why are you even talking about the book of Abraham as an Egyptologist? Haven't you just rendered your entire field of endeavor and analysis as it applies to the book of Abraham meaningless? Now, to be fair to Dr. Muehlstein, I don't think that's what he intended by this comment, but it sure comes across that way as perhaps a Freudian slip on his part. Uh, so I do not think uh, that it has been or can be disproved because in the end, the book of Abraham is not about Egyptology uh, and it's not based on Egyptology really in any way. Daniel Stewart, a listener to this program, wrote this about that comment. I thought that was a strange admission coming from him, i.e. Dr. Muehlstein. He pretty much blows up everything right there and in what follows. Like you, he's writing to me. Like you, I'm an attorney. And if opposing counsel said that in court, my ears would have perked right up. He just blew up his entire case. Well, I tend to agree with this listener, Daniel Stewart, another attorney. That's what caught my eye. That's what made my ears perk up when I heard this same statement from Dr. Muehlstein. In the same way that Dr. Gee surprised me by backing way off the Olishem theory as an evidence for the Book of Abraham in his recent podcast interview at Pearl of Great Price Central, in the same way Dr. Muehlstein has blown me away by making this surprising admission in his interview on a video for Pearl of Great Price Central. It seems that in the overwhelming evidence that Dr. Ridner 
has produced in his interview with Mormon Stories and Radio Free Mormon. The goal of the apologist is twofold. First off, not to mention any of those actual issues and therefore not to respond in a substantive way to any of those issues. And secondly, to back way off of their dogmatic claims which they have been famous for making in the past about how Egyptology proves the Book of Abraham true, even to the point of Dr. Muehlstein stating in public, the Book of Abraham is not based on Egyptology in any way. By the way, that raises another issue. Remember that Dr. Muehlstein has been stating over and over again how he is not going to appear on a podcast with Dr. Rittner to discuss the Book of Abraham because in his first essay, he said that's just not the way that academic work is done. That's not the way an academic discussion occurs. And yet, in spite of that, Dr. Gee has appeared on a podcast interview with Pearl of Great Price Central. Dr. Muehlstein has appeared on a podcast interview at Pearl of Great Price Central. And Dr. Muehlstein, on top of that, has written not one, but two essays on the subject that have gone up at Fair Mormon and also at The Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint thought. And the videos have been published on YouTube as well. It seems that Dr. Muehlstein and Dr. Gee have all sorts of time and interest in providing both written articles, as in Dr. Muehlstein's two essays, as well as podcast interviews on the subject, but nevertheless, for some reason, don't want to do a podcast interview with Dr. Rittner where their feet could be held to the fire. There were a couple of extreme ironies in this 18-minute video put up by Dr. Muehlstein. Irony number one is that Dr. Muehlstein sits down for a podcast discussion to explain why he won't sit down for a podcast discussion. By the way, in this interview, once again, Dr. Muehlstein refuses to even mention the name of Dr. Rittner. The closest he gets to mentioning Dr. Rittner is at the 13.03 minute mark in this 18-minute interview where he states, the book of Abraham doesn't rise or fall on my opinion or reputation or on another scholar's opinion or reputation. Obviously, the other scholar that's being referred to here is Dr. Rittner, even though Dr. Muehlstein does not want to mention Dr. Rittner's name. The text of the book of Abraham doesn't rise or fall on my arguments or my reputation or on another scholar's arguments or reputation for or against it. The second irony in this 18-minute video is that, as you recall, I said it was put up on YouTube. And a number of comments quickly came out in response to this 18-minute YouTube video by Dr. Muehlstein. The first comment that came up was by Dan Vogel, a very well-known expert in the Book of Abraham and the Abraham Egyptian Papers. Dan Vogel has done what I believe is a six-part series on YouTube about the subject in which he covers it in depth. And the first comment on Kerry Muehlstein's YouTube video was by Dan Vogel, at which he very politely took issue with one of the things that Dr. Muehlstein was talking about in the video. A short time after Dan Vogel's comment appeared at the YouTube video, his comment was deleted. And not only that, there were a number of other comments that were deleted from this YouTube video, which leads us to irony number two. You remember irony number one was, Dr. Muehlstein sits down for a podcast discussion to explain why he won't sit down for a podcast discussion. And irony number two is that comments are being deleted from a YouTube video featuring Dr. Muehlstein, who at the same time is advocating in his essay for open and honest discussion of the issues, which led yours truly, Radio Free Mormon, to post in the comments under the YouTube video, why are you deleting so many comments? Clearly, you are not interested 
in actually engaging in any discussion. Why are you so afraid? That was the entirety of my comment at the YouTube video. And by the way, in fairness, I have to say that they did leave my comment standing. I posted that five days ago. It is still there to be seen as of this recording at eight o'clock in the morning Pacific time on Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. But it does not appear that they have reposted Dan Vogel's comment, which they deleted shortly after the interview went up on September 2nd, 2020 on YouTube. Now, these responses by Dr. Muelstein, both in writing and in video, is part of a multi-pronged approach. They are not just appearing at Pearl of Great Price Central, which puts it up on YouTube. And Dr. Muelstein's essays are not only being promoted at Fair Mormon, where they appear as well. It is also being promoted by Professor Daniel C. Peterson, who is the editor of Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Thought, which you can find on the internet. And once again, I encourage you to go there and look at it. The Interpreter also published Kerry Muelstein's initial essay and his updated essay, which we've gone over now in this podcast. Daniel C. Peterson, in addition to being the editor of The Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint thought, Daniel C. Peterson has his own blog under the title Sick et Non, that's S-I-C-E-T, N-O-N. And on the same date as the video went up on September 2nd, 2020, Professor Peterson promotes that video under a blog article titled An Update from Professor Muelstein Regarding Work on the Book of Abraham. See what I mean about this being a multi-pronged approach? They're doing everything they can and using every venue over which they have control to get the word out about these essays and videos which are responding to Dr. Rittner's interviews at Radio Free Mormon and Mormon Stories. It is obvious that the issue about the comments being deleted from the video on YouTube have raised the problem and therefore Daniel C. Peterson seeks to address it here as only he can. First he tells us, as I understand it, incidentally, this interview by Dr. Muelstein, this interview was not, he emphasizes that word, was not recorded as a direct response to recent controversies involving Professor Robert Rittner. Well, of course, we all understand that all of the stuff that's happening is not a response to Dr. Rittner. It just happens that after Dr. Rittner produces a 13-hour thorough in-depth interview criticizing Joseph Smith's ability to translate Egyptian and further criticizing Dr. Muelstein and Dr. Gee's academic work as apologists, all of a sudden we have a flurry of articles and videos coming out which are not addressing those interviews. Yes, we get that, Professor Peterson. Once again, he says, as I understand it, incidentally, this interview was not recorded as a direct response to recent controversies involving Professor Robert Ridner. It's important to get that message out. He then writes, accordingly, pointing out, as some have, that it doesn't respond to Professor Ridner is rather irrelevant. See, once again, this is the non-response response. We're going to respond to Dr. Rittner, but we're not going to say we're responding to Dr. Rittner. Therefore, we are not responding to Dr. Rittner, which is why I call it a non-response response. And the non-response responses keep multiplying. But now Dr. Peterson in his blog at Sick at Non, and once again, I encourage you to go there and read it yourself. However, the good folks at Book of Mormon Central appear to have removed several of the comments that initially followed the posted interview. So he acknowledges this, but then tries to put his own sardonic spin on it. That's too bad, Professor Peterson writes. That's too bad that they removed these comments. That's too bad in at least one sense. 
If you would like to have seen a nice sampling of textbook quality illustrations of the ad hominem logical fallacy, generally and aptly classified by students of informal logic as a fallacy of distraction, you would definitely have enjoyed reading several of these comments. They were gems. So what Professor Peterson says is that he acknowledges that a lot of the comments have been removed, but then says they were just ad hominem comments and that it's too bad the people at Book of Mormon Central removed them because they were gems as illustrations of the ad hominem fallacy. Well, he doesn't say what was actually in any of those comments, and he doesn't mention the fact that Dan Vogel is one of those who posted an early comment, and he doesn't mention that what Dan Vogel said was definitely not an ad hominem comment. It was purely substantive. So he doesn't explain why it is that Dan Vogel's comment got removed, but that's really not Professor Peterson's point. His point is to acknowledge the fact that some have been removed, something that really cannot be gainsaid at this point, but then to give an explanation for it that does not fit the facts, so that his readers will be assured that the removal of those comments was entirely justified. And now, to catch you completely up to date, late last week on Thursday or Friday, it was announced on YouTube by Fair Mormon that none other than Dr. John Gee would be presenting a live broadcast on the subject of the historicity of the Book of Abraham on this past Sunday, September 6th, at high noon, Utah time. When I found out about this, I promoted that video on my Facebook page. Bill Real promoted that video on his Facebook page, and John DeLynn promoted that video on his Facebook page. So we wanted the word to get out to our audience that John Gee was going to be presenting a live lecture on the historicity of the Book of Abraham, because obviously this was definitely going to be in response to Dr. Rittner, and we wanted to see how effective he would be at responding to some of the points that Dr. Rittner raised in his 13-hour interview. Now, the advertisement itself was very clear that this would be a live broadcast, and the video even had a countdown on it, counting down the hours and minutes to the starting time of that address by Dr. Gee, once again at noon, Mountain Time. But unfortunately, after we had promoted that video on behalf of Dr. Gee and Fair Mormon, at some point on Friday afternoon or Friday evening, that video on YouTube was removed. It was taken down. It appears that the idea of having Dr. Gee present on the historicity of the Book of Abraham at noon on Sunday was scrapped. At this point, we have no idea why it was that this project was scrapped after being announced by Fair Mormon on YouTube. But as Bill Reel has said, the only thing that we are pretty sure of is that we're not going to get a straight answer as to why it was scrubbed either by Dr. Gee or by Fair Mormon. So now having caught us all up to date on the recent happenings of the Mormon apologetic world in response to the Rittner interviews, I want to finally get to the subject of tonight's podcast and talk about three examples of the games that apologists play regarding the Book of Abraham. The first has to do with the missing scroll theory. Now you will recall that the missing scroll theory posits that the Book of Abraham, the text of the Book of Abraham, was actually written in Egyptian on the papyrus, but it was written on a part of the papyrus that we do not have, that was not recovered, that was not found in the New York City Metropolitan Museum of Art back in 1966 and was then repatriated to the church. It was somewhere else. It was either on a missing part of the same papyri that has facsimile one on it, or it was on a completely different roll of papyri. Now, because part of the recovered papyri 
does have facsimile 1 on it, it makes it important for purposes of this missing papyrus theory that the text of the book of Abraham be on the same scroll as facsimile 1. That only makes sense since facsimile 1 appears at the beginning of the text of the book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. And so Dr. John Gee has posited as a theory that there was an exceptionally long scroll, that this particular scroll with facsimile 1 on it was extremely long. Now, Dr. Rittner has talked about the fact that usually these scrolls run around six feet in length. Now, that's a very long scroll if we're comparing it to a regular piece of paper that we write on nowadays. Six feet is extremely long. The paper I write on is eight and a half by 11, and even if we're still using legal size paper, that's only 11 by 14, and that's 11 inches by 14 inches, by the way, not 11 feet by 14 feet. A six-foot scroll is much longer than the paper that is commonly used in today's society, as well as the paper that was commonly used in Joseph Smith's culture. They did not write on six-feet-long pieces of paper as a matter of course. But what Dr. Gee has posited is perhaps a 20-foot-long scroll or even a 30- or 40-foot-long scroll because there has to be a long enough scroll to account for the parts that were recovered that has facsimile 1 still on it and then have enough missing scroll to have the text of the book of Abraham written on it so that the scroll can be long enough to account for what we do have and also to provide a basis for how it could possibly be that the book of Abraham was written on this missing part of this very long scroll that we no longer have. That is the gravamen of the missing scroll theory. And the reason this came to my attention recently is that a fellow who identifies himself as Joe has wanted to discuss some aspects of the book of Abraham from an apologetic viewpoint. Now, it's obvious that Joe is very well acquainted with apologetic writings, including those of Dr. Gee relating to the book of Abraham. And one of the things he said at the beginning of one of his very lengthy and multiple posts caught my attention. And what he said was, is that eyewitness testimony shows that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from a very, very lengthy scroll with the idea in mind that if I'm saying something different or if Dr. Rittner is saying something different, then we are contradicting eyewitness testimony. Now, first off, I have to say this. If we're going to make a decision on which side of an argument we're going to come down on, and one side of that argument has to do with eyewitness testimony from 150 years ago versus the textual evidence that we actually have, both in the recovered Joseph Smith papyri as well as the Abraham Egyptian papers from Kirtland and Nauvoo, and if the conclusions from those two different sources contradict each other as they do in this instance, then obviously it would make more sense to go with the conclusion that is drawn from the actual documents themselves versus what some witnesses said 150 years ago. But the thing that concerned me is that Joe was obviously taking Dr. Gee's word for it, i.e. Dr. Gee's word for the idea that eyewitness testimony said that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from an exceedingly lengthy scroll. Now, I haven't responded in writing to Joe. I don't know that I have time to respond to him in as much length as he would like. Basically, Joe initially came upon the scene to try and explain why it was that Carrie Mulestein was not chicken for refusing to go on a podcast with Dr. Rittner. And then Joe proposed that if we answered his questions, i.e. Joe's questions, to his satisfaction, then he would pass it along to Carrie and see if Carrie would reconsider going on a podcast. Yes, I'm not making this up. 
Well, as it turned out, Joe finally had to admit that really he doesn't know Carrie Muelstein at all and that he had exaggerated that part of his claim, i.e. he had made it up, which seems to be kind of standard operating procedure for apologists. They just make a lot of stuff up. And here we're getting to something else that apologists have made up, something that tricked Joe into believing the apologists on this issue about the long scroll from which Joseph Smith allegedly translated the Book of Abraham. Now, this is something that I went over in my interview with Brian Hauglid, and I will synopsize it here, but refer you to that interview for the details. Because remember, in the course of that discussion with Brian Hauglid, he talked about this very game that Dr. Gee played in order to try and find evidence to support his missing papyrus theory. And what he did was, in a footnote in his recent book, Dr. Gee takes two witness statements. One is a little bit late, one is very late. They're two completely independent statements. And then conflates the two in order to support his theory. One of those statements says that a witness saw the scroll from which Joseph translated the book of Abraham, period. Another witness, completely unrelated and much later, says that she saw a very long scroll that was in the collection that Joseph Smith had purchased in 1835 in Kirtland, Ohio. So one witness talks about a scroll from which Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham, and another witness just talks about a long scroll period with no reference to Joseph Smith translating the book of Abraham from it. What John Gee does is then he takes those two completely separate eyewitness statements and combines them in order to draw the conclusion that he wants to draw, which is that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from a very long scroll. Well, neither of those witness statements says that independently, and if you put them together, they don't say that either. But John Gee, in his book, makes the statement unequivocally that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from a very, very long scroll that he had in his possession, and it is only in the footnotes where he cites to these two statements that we can see the game that John Gee is playing, a game that apparently tricked Joe sufficiently that he believed it was true because Joe has not listened to the interview with Brian Hauglid and he has not listened to the 13 hours of interviews with Dr. Robert Rittner. So that is the first game that Egyptologists play with regard to the book of Abraham and this is a very specific instance of these kind of games. The second game I want to mention that was played by Dr. Gee and Dr. Muelstein has to do with the LDS Church's essay on the Book of Abraham Translation and Historicity, which you can find at thechurchofjesuschrist.org, the LDS Church's official website. And this particular game has to do with the issue of human sacrifice among the ancient Egyptians. Now, we have gone over in some detail the fact that no non-LDS Egyptologist claims that there was human sacrifice among the ancient Egyptians. In fact, they are all of one voice claiming the exact opposite, that the ancient Egyptians did not practice human sacrifice. And yet the book of Abraham itself in chapter one talks about the Egyptians practicing human sacrifice. In fact, they did it to three virgins and they were also going to do it to Abraham. And that is the entire mise en scène of chapter one of the book of Abraham, this human sacrifice that was being practiced by the ancient Egyptians. Therefore, it is critical for the Book of Abraham apologists to argue that actually the ancient Egyptians did practice human sacrifice because if they didn't, then that's a real strike against the Book of Abraham right there. And they place in their essay this idea about human sacrifice among the ancient Egyptians. And here's what the essay says. And this, 
I attribute to Dr. John Gee and Dr. Carrie Muelstein because Brian Hauglid was on the committee with those two, as well as others, that wrote this essay. And Brian Hauglid has told us that it was the two Egyptologists who wanted this information in the essay about the historicity of the Book of Abraham, and that, in fact, there was a great deal of argument about the inclusion of this information, or this disinformation, I should say, that Brian Howley did not want it in the essay, but that he was overruled in this by Carrie Muelstein and Dr. John Gee, and they included this particular paragraph. The Book of Abraham speaks disapprovingly of human sacrifice offered on an altar in Chaldea. Some victims were placed on the altar as sacrifices because they rejected the idols worshipped by their leaders. Recent scholarship. Now note this part. Recent scholarship has found instances of such punishment dating to Abraham's time. People who challenged the standing religious order, either in Egypt or in the regions over which it had influence, such as Canaan, could and did suffer execution for their offenses. Now, this is where they come into contact and even in contradiction with the entire Egyptological field on this issue. And yet they're going to include it in the essay on the book of Abraham as a proof for the truth of the book of Abraham. But here they give a footnote and that footnote is number 36. If you click that footnote, you will see that they give a number of references in support of this idea that the ancient Egyptians practiced human sacrifice. There is an article by Carrie Muelstein. There's another article by Carrie Muelstein. Then there's an article by a fellow named Anthony Leahy. And finally, at the very bottom of this footnote, they cite an article from a non-LDS Egyptologist or archaeologist named Harco Willems. That's H-A-R-C-O Harco Willems, W-I-L-L-E-M-S. And they cite to his article, Crime, Cult, and Capital Punishment, relating to the Moala inscription number 8, as published in the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology, number 76, in 1990, pages 27 through 54. Now, this article by Harco Williams is the focus of the comment I want to make. And this is the focus of the game that John Gee and Carrie Muelstein are playing in using this article as a site in footnote 36 for their proposition that the ancient Egyptians practiced human sacrifice as it is described in the book of Abraham. And the reason that this is important is because recently an individual got in contact with Harco Willems, who is still around, still alive. And in the communication, this person asked if Harco Willems was in agreement with the way his article was being cited in the church essay to prove this point. And it appears that Harco Willems, from his response, was first off unaware that his article was being used to support this particular issue in the church essay, and second, that he was very displeased that it was being used to support this particular issue because, from Harco Willems' point of view, the guy who wrote the article in the first place, his article actually supports the direct opposite of how it's being used in the church essay. Here is the email to Harco Willems from only a few weeks ago. This is what was asked. Is the description of the human sacrifice found in the book of Abraham match the type of human sacrifice your research discusses in Crime, Cult, Capital Punishment, i.e. the title of that very article that's cited in footnote 36 of the church essay? The question is, is the description, I think it might have been, does the description of the human sacrifice found in the book of Abraham match the type of human sacrifice your research discusses? But regardless of that, here is the unequivocal response from Harco Willems. Dear Sir, 
The biblical, or Book of Abraham, passage does not conform to what the Mu'ala text describes. You remember that the Mu'ala text was the focus of Harko Willem's 1990 article on the subject. Dear Sir, the biblical, or Book of Abraham, passage does not conform to what the Mu'ala text describes. As attentive reading, he goes on, as attentive reading of the argumentation set forth in my article will immediately show. My article has been publicly published and therefore can be used by anyone. So he recognizes the fact that anybody can use it as a footnote for anything. It's published publicly. There's nothing he can do about that. However, he goes on, however, I fail to see how my work, which does not have the intention to support any ideology, and which proposes an interpretation that is completely at loggerheads with the suggestion you make can be stated to support your truth claims. Harko Willems thinks this is coming from a believer in the book of Abraham. So he says he doesn't see how his scholarship, which proposes an interpretation that is completely at loggerheads with the suggestion you make, can be stated to support your truth claims, i.e. that the ancient Egyptians practice human sacrifice. I strongly object, he goes on, I strongly object to any statement in your publication suggesting I do support these claims. With best regards, Harko Willems. So, in summary, under game number two that Book of Abraham apologists are playing is that they know that Egyptologists, all non-LDS Egyptologists, believe and teach that there was no human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. They also know that the Book of Abraham teaches that the ancient Egyptians practiced human sacrifice, and therefore, they want to put that in the church essay. Well, they do put it in the church essay. They have a footnote for it, footnote 36, and they desperately want to cite non-LDS Egyptologists and scholars in support of their theory. And therefore, they come up with an article which they are misusing as a site, which actually states the exact opposite of what it is that they're proposing it says as a citation in support of their argument that the ancient Egyptians practiced human sacrifice. And when the author of that article is contacted regarding the use of his article in the church essay to support that proposition, he states not only that his article is completely at loggerheads, with the suggestion you make, i.e. the way it's used in the church essay, and that he strongly objects to any statement in the church essay suggesting that he supports those claims. You see, that's what happens when the actual Egyptologists and scholars whose work is being cited in LDS publications to support LDS truth claims find out that their work is being used in that way. First off, they make it clear that it is being misused, and second off, that they object to it being misused in that way. So that is the second game. The first game has to do with taking two different witness sources and combining them in order to create the idea out of whole cloth that there were eyewitnesses that said that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from an exceptionally long scroll. And the second game has to do with the misuse of citing non-LDS scholarly publications in support of book of Abraham truth claims in an LDS publication and misusing the non-LDS scholar source so badly that when the non-LDS scholar finds out about it, he is incensed at the misuse of his scholarship and says so. Now that brings us to the third game that the Book of Abraham apologists play. And this one has to do with John Gee and what has come to be known in certain circles as his two-ink theory. This comes from Dr. Gee's 
2002 book. I think it was published in 2002. It was about 20 years ago titled A Guide to the Joseph Smith Papyri. And in that book on page 22, John Gee makes the following remarkable claim. And it's remarkable because it's completely inaccurate. Now, this claim has to do with the Abraham Egyptian papers and specifically those papers that have in the left margin copies of certain Egyptian characters, ostensibly from the scrolls. Those characters are written out in the left-hand margin of the paper. Now, this paper looks like the kind of paper you might buy at the stationery store. It's the kind of paper we normally use that has lines across it horizontally to write on. And in the left hand, it has a margin line about one or one and a half inches from the left-hand side of the paper. So that's the left-hand margin. There is a line there on this manuscript paper. And in the margin is written at several places, Egyptian characters. And then next to the Egyptian characters, the balance of the line paper is used to write out English text. This appears to be a place where the English text is supposed to be a translation of the Egyptian characters written in the margins. Now, here's the interesting thing. At no place do the Egyptian characters actually overrun or overwrite the English text. Now, you say, why is that interesting? Well, the reason it's interesting is because John Gee in this book says the exact opposite. What he says on page 22 of his book, A Guide to the Joseph Smith Papyri, is this, examples of Egyptian characters written in the margins of the Kirtland Egyptian Papers Book of Abraham Manuscripts. The examples show that the characters, one, were written in different ink than the English text. That's the first thing he says about it, that they were written in different ink than the English text. That's part of his two-ink theory. That, by the way, has been obliterated by none other than forensic document examiner George Throckmorton. Now, George Throckmorton is the forensic documents examiner who determined that the Hoffman documents were forgeries. This same George Throckmorton looked at the two different inks that were used in the Kirtland Egyptian papers and determined that there was no way of telling whether these were different types of ink that were used. And so that you know where I'm getting this account, I'm getting this account directly from Brian Hauglid, who himself got it directly from George Throckmorton. That is the source of this particular account. Now, the question immediately arises, why is it that John Gee feels it important to make this argument that there are two different types of ink being used on these papers, one ink for the Egyptian characters in the margin and the other ink being used for the English translation. The reason he wants to make this argument, and you're probably way ahead of me on this, has to do once again with the problems that are raised for apologists by the Abraham Egyptian papers. That problem is this. If indeed the Abraham Egyptian papers are what they appear to be, which is an attempt to translate Egyptian characters into English, then what we can know from that is once again that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian because the translation does not match. It's not even close to matching. And all Egyptologists today, including Dr. John Gee and Dr. Kerry Muelstein, know it. So they have to account for what appears to be a translation from Egyptian into English in these papers in some other way. And the way that they've come up with, as difficult as it is to believe, is that what was going on here is that certain scribes, not Joseph Smith, but certain scribes were taking the text of the book of Abraham, which had already been produced by Revelation, and they were trying to reverse engineer that translation into Egyptian characters that were on the papyri. And no, I'm not making that up. As ridiculous as that sounds, 
That's what the apologetic argument has to be. And that is what John Gee's position has to be. Now, therefore, he wants to make the argument that different inks are used. Why? Because if the same ink is used, then we could see a person sitting down, writing the Egyptian character, and then writing a translation next to it, getting to the end of that translation, which again is several sentences long. It's a whole paragraph of translation from one Egyptian character or a cluster of Egyptian characters. An entire paragraph is produced. That paragraph is completed, and then a new Egyptian character is written in the margin, and a new translation occurs alongside of it. If that's the way it's done, then it would make sense that the same ink is used both for the Egyptian characters as well as for the translation next to it. What John Gee wants to do is say, no, these are different inks that were being used, which would lead to the conclusion that the characters were put in the margin at a different time than the English text is next to those characters. So he wants the translation to be there first and the characters put there later, and that's why he promotes this two-ink theory in his 2002 book. Well, George Throckmorton looked at the inks and said it was impossible to determine whether these were different inks, even looking at them under his microscope. And so because of that, i.e. because there's no evidence to support his theory, John Gee appears to have backed off of that theory. At least he has not renewed that theory in any of his subsequent writings or public comments, to my knowledge. But that's why it's called the two-ink theory. But he goes on to make other claims regarding these documents. That was only number one. He says, the examples show that the characters, one, were written in different ink than the English text. Well, we've seen that that's not true. Number two, do not line up with the English text. And that part seems questionable. But number three is the one I want to get to now. And three, run over the margins, which they do. And the margin, of course, is that vertical line on the left of the paper. The character is being written in the margin itself. And in some instances, those Egyptian characters running over that vertical line. But then he goes a bridge too far and says, and sometimes the English text. So once again, he's saying the examples show that the characters run over the margins and sometimes the English text. So in other words, sometimes the characters run over the English text. Now, we know why it is that John Gee would want to say that, right? Because if the characters run over the English text, in other words, if the ink from the Egyptian characters runs over the English text, then that would suggest that the Egyptian characters were put there on the paper, in the margins, after the English text was written. Once again, he's trying to argue for this reverse engineering as an explanation for the Abraham Egyptian papers. The problem is that at no point do the Egyptian characters actually run over the English text. He is stating something that is not supported by the evidence. It's contradicted by the evidence. There is no instance in which the ink from the Egyptian characters run over the English text, and yet he states that this is what is shown, that the Egyptian characters run over the margins and sometimes the English text. And from this, he makes this conclusion. Once again, this is his desired conclusion. This is why he's stating these things, even though they're contradicted by the evidence or not supported by any evidence at all. This indicates, he writes, this indicates that the Egyptian characters were added after the English text was written, perhaps to decorate the beginnings of paragraphs although the reason for their inclusion was never explicitly stated. So he is moving heaven and earth to make these Egyptian characters written in the margin after the English translation was placed there. Now, this misstatement of John Gee's that the ink from the Egyptian characters in some places runs over the English text led to 
a discussion between another scholar and John Gee, or should I say between this other scholar and actually Dan Peterson, who was acting as the major domo for John Gee in this discussion. This was written by a scholar named Seymour Bloom at his blog site lds-mormon.com. It's titled More Book of Abraham Problems, and it's written under comments on A Guide to the Joseph Smith Papyri by John Gee, which is a 67-page booklet published by Farms in 2000. So it was the year 2000, not the year 2002. I misstated that earlier. Seymour Bloom writes a brief article about John Gee's book and then has an addendum at the bottom of this article. He writes this, Since writing the above, I have reread this booklet and have found a serious misstatement by the author, Dr. John Gee, to bolster his theory that the Egyptian characters were added to the left margins of the Book of Abraham manuscripts after the English text was written, Gee furnishes several examples. On page 22, he claims that in example one, the Egyptian characters run over the margin and the English text. If one examines this closely, one can see that it does overrun the margin. However, it does not run over the English text. Seymour Bloom goes on to say, I pointed out this misstatement on the Zion Lighthouse member board website. In the same thread in which Seymour Bloom posted this, in the same thread, John Gee, via Daniel Peterson, in other words, Daniel Peterson coming and speaking in for John Gee, stated that I incorrectly interpreted overrun as meaning overwrite. Quoting now from Daniel Peterson. Oh, no, no, no. No, this is Daniel Peterson who is apparently providing the argument in the first person directly from John Gee. So this is John Gee via Daniel Peterson, as it states in the article. The argument claims that I am, one, stupid because I use the term overrun to mean overwrite. So you see, they're going to try and draw a distinction here. They're going to say, hey, I said overrun, not overwrite, as if that makes any difference. So number one, the argument claims that I am stupid because I use the term overrun to mean overwrite. And number two, dishonest because the text is not overwritten. I never intended the term overrun to mean overwrite, since they are not synonyms. The term overwrite means to write something over another writing. Overrun, on the other hand, means to run farther than or beyond a certain point, a limit, etc., or to exceed. I used the term correctly, John Gee writes, I used the term correctly to argue that Egyptian characters ran farther than or beyond the margin line and into the space used for the English text. See how he's changing his argument now? And into the space used for the English text. In fact, in one instance, into the indentation left by the English text. The Egyptian may overrun the English without necessarily overriding the English. That is John Gee's response. So this is amazing. So we actually have somebody holding his feet to the fire and saying, John Gee, in your book, you're stating that the Egyptian characters overrun the English text. That's exactly what he stated. That's exactly what I read to you from page 22 of John Gee's book from the year 2000, an introduction to the Joseph Smith papyri. And when he's called on it, now John Gee is trying to say that he didn't mean that the Egyptian characters overran the English text, which is what he wrote, by the way. What John Gee says in response is, hey, I said it overran the text. I didn't say it overwrote the text. So therefore, if it's overrunning the text, it doesn't mean it's actually running over the text. If I meant it was running over the text, I wouldn't have said it's overrunning the text. I would have said it's overwriting the text. So these are the kind of linguistic and definitional games that John Gee has to play in order to say he wasn't either stupid or dishonest 
when he wrote that. Well, I don't think he was stupid when he wrote it. I do think he was dishonest when he wrote it because he said that the ink from the Egyptian characters, the Egyptian characters themselves overrun the English text when in fact they do not overrun the English text. John Gee was trying to come up with a way of framing this that made it sound like the evidence supported his theory when in fact the evidence does not support his theory. All the while, I suspect, all the while knowing that if anybody ever called him on it, this is the line of retreat that he would follow to say, hey, I didn't say overwrite, I said overran, when manifestly it means the same thing. But this is going to be his fig leaf that he's going to latch onto in order to try and prove that he's neither stupid nor dishonest, when obviously he has to be one or the other or both. Seymour Bloom concludes his article at lds-mormon.com with his thoughts about John Gee's explanation. Gee is wrong in his interpretation of the meaning of the word overrun. He did not try to explain run over, which Dr. Gee also said, by the way. To double check, I looked up run over and overrun in the second edition of the American Heritage Dictionary. Meaning number three of run over is the only one that would apply to something written on paper. That definition is flow over. The two applicable meanings of overrun are one, to overflow, and two, to run or extend beyond. Gee was clearly mistaken. He said the Egyptian characters overrun or run over the English text. That's the quote from Gee. He should have said that the Egyptian characters run over or overrun the area used for English text without being written on top of the English text because that is what the evidence shows. And what this entire exchange shows is that This is the third example of games apologists play in order to fool their audience. Yes, to fool their audience into thinking that the evidence supports their theories when actually the evidence does not support their theory. And in some instances, such as footnote 36 from the church essay, the evidence actually contradicts their theories. So these are my three examples of the games that apologists play in order to support the Book of Abraham. They are specifically games that Dr. Muelstein and Dr. Gee play in order to support their theories of the Book of Abraham. And one has to wonder, why is it that if their conclusions about the Book of Abraham are really rooted in Egyptology that is accepted by their peers, and if the evidence from the Joseph Smith papyri, as well as from the Abraham Egyptian papers, supports their theories, Why do they have to play such games and mischaracterize what it is that those manuscripts show in order to support their theories? That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.